0: Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic interventions. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. On this episode of the LOL pod, my guest and fellow counselor Marty Babitz and I talk about emotional nutrition, couples therapy, and the impact that our past experiences have on our ability to have healthy relationships. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. I'm very excited today to have a guest with me. He is the co-director of the Family and Couples Treatment Service, which is a division of the Institute of Contemporary Psychotherapy in New York. He's the author of The Power of the Middle Ground and I'm Not a Mind Reader. He's an educator and a blogger for Psychology Today, and he is in private practice in New York City. Today I have Mr. Marty Babbitt. Hi, Marty. How are you?
1: Hi, LaShonda. Very happy to be here.
0: I'm very excited to have you here. Um, Really looking forward to our conversation. So I'm going to start with you, like I do with all of my guests, and ask, what is your labor of love?
1: My labor of love is elucidating, the nature of love. And that has many different nuances and uh, phases and perspectives. My newest project is called Emotional Nutrition. And the idea is uh, that couples need to learn how to emotionally nurture each other And if I can guide them through opening up to that process, there's a lot of negative stuff that happens in relationships that often becomes the focus of couples therapy. I want to switch out the foreground and the background, put the the movement towards what's positive, loving, and repairing, healing, and put the negative stuff in the background, so that we can analyze it from within a perspective of growth, mm. you know? So, so the basic metaphor that I usually think of, it, although there's a number of them, one of the basic ones is people come in and they're stuck. They're stuck where they are. So I want to help them conceptualize a vision of where they can go to from the inside. And once I can make that connection and help them move forward, then we're energizing the relationship. Along the way, of course, we will deal with anger and whatever else the the problems and obstacles to mutual nurturance are are of concern. But the main main thing is to, to develop that perspective what does their commitment to each other mean? Does it mean they want to help each other grow, learn, and love? Or is it just that they're fighting off each other
0: mm-hmm. after
1: the period has ended? You know?
0: Yeah, that is so I, I love the metaphor. Um, I really love the name because I feel like um it really people have some conception of diet intake and and nurturance and all of these things and so I like that it's taking something that people probably have at least a loose familiarity with and bringing it into um, relationships in a way that you know that is meaningful so when you say your latest project does that mean uh, is it a book is it a curriculum Uh, what's it look like tangibly it's both
1: You know, it's both. It's a book. Um, I do teach it within the Institute of Contemporary Psychotherapy. Um, I don't teach it exclusively, but but it's one of the the threads that I weave in. Um, There are a lot of learnings that have to happen that contribute to it. And uh, so I'm always looking to develop the curriculum and develop modalities to highlight it but people are, a lot of people are visual learners. So mm-hmm. I like to try to create something they can look at. Um, but, you know, the another thing about it though, is because I've been, I I, test, I tested, you could say, I um, experimented with it. I improvised with it in my work as a couples therapist. And I kept with it because people responded to it. You know, and people, it's like emotional nutrition, the way I've described it is people need things from each other. They can identify what those needs are. They can think about scenarios that would help them deliver. So it's, it's about not just having it in your head, but it's interpersonal. Are you getting it across, you know? Mm-hmm. Then it's also people, people do have the will often to be giving, but they're not assessing what their partner needs. So they may, uh, like actually one of the couples that I developed the idea with, the guy, it was a heterosexual couple, the guy, he was very unusual in the sense that he was a a homemaker. He was a childcare um, doer. He didn't have to be prompted, he took care of everything around the home, and he had uh, a mindset that his, his partner should feel very lucky to be with a guy like that, you know? Meanwhile, she was starving for affection and their sex life had dwindled. And after they had a, um, their second child, there was a postpartum depression. And his thing was doing, like he cleaned everything up around the house, but he didn't give her a a space to speak about her feelings. Yeah. So that's the setting. They came in for couples therapy and I'm talking about what you're giving her is beautiful, but it doesn't match with what she needs. So can we think of that as these are different kinds of nutrients. Let's match the nutrient to the need.
0: Yeah, I I I like that. It's funny you said that. And every I sometimes uh will ask my partner, you feel lucky that you are with someone who really can talk to you about any sport and like actually know what I'm talking about. So like <laughs> in one hand, I understood yeah. that, like, hey, do you realize that, you know, it's not as uncommon as I think society would have us to have would think, but like, hey man, I can talk really like I know what I'm talking about because he's a sports guy. And I think there are times when we go like, hey, do you understand what I'm bringing? Um, because we have sometimes preconceived notions about what's important to our partner based on what we've ingested and and our perception of what would be important. And so, um, and and he'll say like, sure, you know, but at, I, I realized early on as we were dating that like, if I couldn't, he would be fine. <laughs> he, he doesn't necessarily... You know, that wasn't, I don't think this thing that he was out seeking, but me thinking like, oh, he's really into sports, you know, this is, you know, he's really going to appreciate this. And again, it's not that he doesn't, but I was trying to predetermine, you know, what were going to be these high quality characteristics. And to be fair, um, when we got together, I was still very much um, in the, I would say the early parts of my healing journey so I was still very much a shapeshifter I was still very much a people pleaser so Mm -hmm. I recognized that I was trying to morph into like this ideal partner you know very early on let me be this and let me show him that I can be this so that he would you know really be like oh this is great um but I've said this numerous times but you know it was very frustrating because he would never give me enough to morph to he was really always just content with me being me. And that was kind of the first time in my life that happened. So it was very frustrating. Now I'm very grateful for it, but then I'm like, come on, dude. I mean, I need you to tell me who I need to be. And, and he just would never do that. And so that's kind of what came up for me as you were talking about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a very well articulated point, you know? Um, and the thing is, it may not have been what he's looking. He was looking for, but it's a beautiful asset to the relationship. Mm-hmm. That you can understand one of his passions. Yeah. So it all counts, mm-hmm. but it doesn't always count the way we think it's going to count.
0: Yeah, and I think what happens sometimes too is, you know, I'll use me as an example. I might say, okay, like I'm going to really put forth effort to be this person. And that's also interesting that, you know, it never occurred to me that um, it could just be like a characteristic, you know, it's part of a, a shape shifter, which is, has been a survival technique of mine since I was a little girl. It, it's not a necessarily, we don't often think of it as, here's a characteristic or an attribute. We go, how do I embody? How do I become? And so the focus on becoming this kind of perfect mate sometimes um seeds this expectation that the partner's going to do the same and so then we have something that's important to us and we don't see them morphing and shifting and putting a a priority towards it and and sometimes I know for me that led to a lot of disappointment and feeling rejected um when I hadn't necessarily communicated what I, you know, what I needed or what I wanted, but it was like, well, doesn't everyone else in the world anticipate other people's needs and just turn into them? But yeah, it, it turned into this resentment or this animosity that he wasn't, or, you know, why isn't he doing as much? You know, it felt like a, a quantity thing that, you know, I was doing more. And so it's very interesting how much I've learned about how my Uh, then survival skill of shape-shifting impacts relationships, not just from what I do, but my perspective and beliefs about how relationships work.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's very interesting. Um, You're talking about what you need to do to be the perfect partner or to make the match work and looking at what the other person does. And that's important but it sometimes becomes a preoccupation because you're you're guiding yourself through the other person's eyes rather than from the inside out Mm -hmm. right so some of that is basic mindfulness like being aware and allowing the other person's reality to come in and to assess how you want to respond to it but then, if the relationship is grounded in emotional safety, you can kind of take a deep breath and relax and say, "I can do, but I also can just be. I can just be who I am with this person, and they and notice whether they're leaving you a space to do that. Does it does it freak them out? Uh-huh. That you're doing doing doing, or does, do they accept it? And if they do, that energizes you to be yourself more and more. And it goes back and forth. It has to be a two-way thing.
0: Mm-hmm. You know? It's very powerful. The power of being, you know, that that's a newer concept for me. I think, you know, if I were to take the many lenses through which I look at life and apply it to myself, I would say one, um, as a relational trauma survivor, for one thing, that impacted how I viewed relationships. As an Enneagram too, um, I am constantly other focused. Um, even I notice it rises up. I my my mindfulness and awareness of it is uh allows me to recognize when it happens, but it doesn't stop it from happening. My first inclination that rises within me is always other what are they thinking what are they saying what are they doing how are they perceiving now that I recognize that I am able to go like oh okay there that is and then bring it inward Um, and again that shape-shifting piece and to be um, is something that I've had to and I'm still growing in my understanding of and practice of so I love that when you talk about within relationships being instead of doing, that was a whole conceptualization that was extremely new to me, not just in relationships, but relationships with myself, relationships with work, relationships with everything. It was do, do, do. And mm-hmm. I think that's very common for a lot of people, so many people I work with, mm-hmm. um especially when we are talking about what I call our templates. Those are the beliefs, the worldviews, and the behavioral patterns that we develop growing up in our family systems and our social structures, that there were a lot of people like myself who learned that our caregivers and our families and important people in our lives put a lot of value on our output, on our production, on our doing. And so in order to really feel um, loved and worthy and valued, we learned to do the things that people valued and found worthy and value and you know and loved and so we can get we can start down a path of doing that we don't even recognize so when I do meet with some clients and we have the conversation of being a human being instead of a human doing man Mm -hmm. people are like I, I don't even know what you're talking about. And I'm like, Hey, trust me, I'm, I'm, I'm just a few feet down the journey from you. Let, let's relate on that. And, um, and people begin to recognize how much emphasis they do put on doing. So I I really do like that. An aspect of this is how do you be?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's also a question or something that I try to Uh, weave in to this the balance between doing and being because doing can be a validation of your awareness of the other's being as long as you feel you can do without losing yourself in the doing like you, you you're making a choice to be generous and that's one of the nutrients I talk about: generosity. If you want your relationship to feel warm and loving, sometimes you don't. You, you you have to leave off the quid pro quo considerations, and do something, but not in defiance of of your your being. You don't have to do anything that you are perfect the way you are, and you're capable of doing doing good things, doing loving things. And it doesn't take away from your being and nurturing your partner and yourself, breathing, you know? Yeah. It's really being in the moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there. that's a kind of a, a mindfulness approach to being in relationship with self and others, which yeah. I think is, is so um, it's so good. So many things that we're talking about, I also think are are not, um, I don't, well, I kind of want to say not highly valued Um, in the culture and society that we grow up in, a very capitalistic, performance-based meritocracy, um, prove yourself by what you produce kind of thing. And so I, I recognize that for some people, some couples, it can feel very strange. Um, It's just not how we're socialized. But I think there's so much value in what we're talking about and how couples can relate to one another differently. You know, we oftentimes are absorbing information. Well, as children, we absorb information constantly. You know, many children aren't taught as much as it's what's caught, what they absorb. And mm-hmm. then we have to, our brains does this thing, like it's what the brain does and it has to wrap a narrative around what we're experiencing. And so when we're having a current interaction with our partner, our brain has to make sense of what our, what's happening in our body and it is using a lot of data in order to do that. So it's gonna look at the external stimuli Look at your partner's face, their tone of voice, their body language, and it's going to run that through the filter of your lived experiences. And then it's going to go, oh, well, we've seen that face before. And you don't even have to, this is not a conscious process. If that Mm -hmm. face that they're making reminds you of a previous partner, or albeit mom and dad, Mm -hmm. right, or something you've seen in media, the brain's like, oh, I got it. And I tell people this all the time, our brains um our its job is to wrap a narrative around our experience Mm -hmm. it's not overly concerned with getting it right (laughs) it just has to have a story and so it will give you a narrative and a story regardless of the accuracy and then we run with that and that becomes sometimes a belief and it's funny because sometimes you might look at your partner and go they make a face and your brain is on it like oop We need to know why they made that face. Got it. And they go in and they make up a whole story. But remember yesterday at dinner, when they asked you that question and you gave that answer, they probably are thinking about that answer and they didn't like, and really your partner had gas. They didn't even know they made a face, okay? But our brain is like, I got it, right? And it will give us sometimes a very elaborate narrative about what's happening outside of us. But it also does that, with what's happening in us, you know, our heart rate starts to increase a little bit or we feel something in our stomach and the brain is like, oop, oh, we, we need to figure out what this is. So it'll wrap another narrative around it. And we take those narratives and we run with it. So then we go to the partner and we go, well, if you had a problem with what I said yesterday, why didn't you say it yesterday? And the partner's like, what are you talking about? And then it's, well, you know, oh, so you don't want to talk. I mean, I have seen things go way far, only to say to a couple, ask a couple of questions, and they realize like, that wasn't it at all. And so I think that's, that's also very helpful for couples to realize how not just how they communicate outwardly, but what's happening inside of their brains and their bodies, mm-hmm. I think it can be one of the most effective uh, tools that I can help people to um, understand is that our brains make up stories because that's what it does. And sometimes we don't have to go with the first story that it gives us.
1: Yes, I think that's the key point. It's like your, your brain gets a story and runs with it, particularly if it's in the habit of running. If it's in the habit of breathing deeply, which means an integrated brain functionality, where the emotional part of the brain hasn't taken over, mm-hmm. the part that can sort things out. Right, then you can have a thought and assess the context that the thought came up in, and decide the meaning based on all of that, not just the first impulse of "I'm uncomfortable." I think you just gave me a dirty look. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, so um I'm with you on that, that, I, that, I, you know, we call that psychoeducation. There's different ways, different ways to, you know, talk about what it is, but I think it's enormously helpful for everybody to understand that there is a logic to the way the brain functions and that, and this is a, it may seem like a kind of an academic point in a way, but Um, but it has it has real practical consequences the idea is an emotion is a is something you sense in your body Mm -hmm. emotion is in the body a feeling is what you understand the emotion to mean so we grapple with our feelings but we don't have a choice about our emotions right we have to accept our emotions and then We do have a choice about whether we go with the first thought we have about what that sensation meant, or we want to open ourselves up to other possibilities of, I mean, and I guess that's the beginning of mindfulness or thoughtfulness or considerateness, Mm you know, and, you know, it's not to say that our emotional brain is against us. It can save us. In many different situations, but it it tends to be very overactive. And if it's overactive, it means we're being controlled by our, usually by our fears or anger.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, very
1: much. And it I okay oh, in, in line with what you were saying.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely, <clears throat> I I have found again that when people understand what. The brain and body collaboration is attempting to achieve, then it can realize that it's it's not trying to work against us. You mm-hmm. know, I I I realize that um, understanding what my body is trying to do, um, how it responds autonomically, has been very helpful to me. Um, my My general autonomic response is freeze. Um, I, I know my history and my story. I, I get how I got in there. It's the muscle that's the, mo- the most well-developed um, in that area. But now that I know that, I can go, oh, okay, this thing is happening. Now I can assess what I've taken in through my five senses that's caused my body and brain to feel like I'm in danger. And I will frequently talk about the analogy of a smoke detector, You know, if we have a smoke detector in our home, it doesn't just go off when there's a fire. Sometimes it goes off when we're burning something in the kitchen. Sometimes it goes off if it's outside of a bathroom and someone takes a hot, steamy shower. Some people don't know that. Smoke detectors job is not to assess threat. A smoke detector's job is to detect smoke-like substances. That's it. Yep. And we have a part of our brain that does that. And, you know, we can have a situation that an alarm sounds within us, but nothing's on fire. It's just steam. And if every time steam rose to my smoke detector in my house, I got all my kids together and evacuated it's the middle of the winter. That would be <laughs> that would be, kind of irresponsible. First, I need to say, is this worth evacuating for? Oh, wait, it's steam. And we can teach ourselves how to do that. So, Marty, when you talk about kind of this thoughtfulness, this mindfulness and being aware of that, you know, there are ways to be able to take in and emotions. It's data. I try to, it, you all, it's information. They are simple data points. It's communicating something to you then i need to say okay i hear the alarm i really do the smoke detector is going off now i need to use i need to take that in and say i accept that it's going off and then i need to look around and say do i see flames do i smell smoke do are there indications that there's actually a fire oh no i just took a shower and and we do that very quickly you know, it happens very quickly, not over the course of minutes. I mean, in seconds, our brain can go like, oh, OK, we can develop the, the ability to do that emotionally. But like so many other things, it requires practice.
1: Absolutely. I love your metaphor, smoke detector. Love it. And, um, you know, it's like when I think of it in terms of couples, it's like, first of all, you, you know, you're talking and this, my words are not better than your words. I'm just adding my words to your words. Yeah. When I say you're talking about turning on the reflective capacity. So you hear the sound of the smoke alarm and you don't jump to the conclusion that there's a raging fire. You look around. So looking around is turning on the reflective capacity. You assess. Mm-hmm. And I find that that's, that's a breakthrough moment in couples therapy when people have and they think they have an understanding that when somebody does a very specific thing it always means only that thing Mm -hmm. you know so that's why i advocate for the two big c's curiosity and compassion yes yes you know, talk
0: about curiosity and compassion all the time, Marty, all the time.
1: Yeah, you know, like I'm working with a, a, a woman and she is convinced that her her partner is uh, contemptuous of her. And he, whenever he laughs or smiles, she's thinking the joke's on me. What is he laughing at? So, the, you know, this particular work, there was a moment when she had that reaction in the room with me. And I was able to, to question her partner, were you making fun of her? Were you laughing at her? Were you not taking her seriously? And he said, no, actually I was appreciating her. I loved what she said. And I I just, it made me feel good. So I smiled. And there was something about that moment that created a breakthrough for her. She she w- It was somehow safe for her then to say, hey, maybe I don't have to be threatened if he laughs or smiles in my presence. You yeah, know? and and that's how things change because she opened up to an alternate interpretation. Yeah, you know? and and it's you know it's not it's just because it's a gendered example. I'm I'm not saying it's women that have to do that. Men have to do it equally. Everybody has to do it. non-binary. Gender fluid people have to do it equally, you know, and uh, it's the challenge it's the challenge of expanding into the way the mind at, within the embodied mind can help us be more than we think we can be. I agree with that so
0: very much. you know i I also think it's very important, uh, even using that example. To help people understand that, um, you know, for my 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 focus specialty, uh, trauma, and again for me, trauma isn't about focusing on a, an event or a series of events, but it's about focusing on how our body has learned to respond, the beliefs that we've developed, the worldviews we enact, the behavioral patterns that we do because of some events that we've been through, and. For that particular person, this idea that she was being mocked or someone had contempt for her, she didn't make that up. Like, it's not like, you know, that came out of nowhere and she just like opened up a box one day and was like, hey, let me pick this thing out that I'm going to attribute to laughter and smiling. It's important to know that we, we get stuck in, this, in these ways of perceiving and interpreting information because of experiences that we've been through. So we are constantly having current interactions with historical experiences. And part of the mindfulness, part of the slowing down is to literally help ourselves recognize that it's right now. I am in the present. What do I smell? What do I, what do I hear? What do I feel? Because we can't smell, our five senses don't work in the past. They don't work in the future. We have to utilize them to be in the present once we can come to the present we go like oh okay he's not my my older brother who used to mock me and make my life miserable he's not the person that was in sixth grade and you know i had this terrible experience he you know we can come to the present because what happens is what's coming through the filters of our lived experience is how we felt when something happened. And so it might not be the exact thing, but anything that we could take in through our five senses, That triggers or activates a previous experience, if we're not mindful, we respond to that experience as if we were in that historical context. I think a lot of people can recognize smelling something. Smell is processed very close to the, what I call our smoke detector in our brain. Smell can transport us like none of our senses can instantaneously.
1: What'd you say? It goes right into the brain.
0: It goes, yeah, it doesn't have to go through all these other filters. It goes straight to the brain. And then it's like, and if that smell is pleasant, if it's that smell that helps you feel warm and secure and safe, then all of a sudden, no matter where you are, you start to respond as if you're warm and secure and safe. But if that smell transports you to a a historical experience where you were not those things, it was fear or terror, you might freeze or run or fight because you're being activated based on that historical context. And that happens in relationships all the time. And I find that closer we are in relationships with people, sometimes when we're not mindful, we give them the least benefit of the doubt right it's kind of like no nope I'm sure that's what you were doing but sometimes you know if there is a stranger that we don't know as well there is a tendency sometimes to go like well I really don't know what that person meant maybe I'll be a little more inquisitive but the closer you are to a person like oh I know and so I find that to be uh, true as well
1: Absolutely. Good, good points. I mean, the thing, the thing that goes right in with everything you're saying and all these things happen with the speed of electricity because the brain operates on, it's on electrical circuits.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So you have a situation where a partner looks at their partner and sees what they interpret to be a sneer rather than a smile. And the historical associations come in immediately. So the brain is, is uh, alerted, the smoke alarm goes off. And the smoke alarm has to do with the unresolved feelings of the trauma that happened in the past.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And also it has to do with that person reconnecting with their feelings because their feelings have been dissociated as a result of those previous bad experiences so it's as if the partner is saying i'm smiling at you and that requires you to look at something that you need to flinch when you think about because it's painful and that like really ramps up the resentment you know because not only are you looking at somebody and there you're believing they're sneering at you but they're forcing you to look at something the the past and you don't want to connect to that Mm
0: -hmm.
1: although you need to connect with it to resolve it again you know within a therapeutic situation or just a loving relationship when there's a fresh burst of emotional safety sometimes people can just relax that automatic response and remember, possibly it's not a fire; possibly it's steam.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and that's a beautiful moment. That's a breakthrough moment.
0: It is a breakthrough moment. You know, one of the things that I I very much I do honestly with all my whether I'm working with a, an individual, a couple, or um, a whole family, I think it's important that we explore some of those some of that historical context together. So oh. when I'm working with a couple kind of our, when we first begin our journey together, we are looking pretty deeply at the general question I ask, which is, what was it like growing up being you? And people have, they assign all kinds of words. My favorites are, oh, it was great. Yeah, my childhood was wonderful. Okay. Hey, I'm not trying to take that away from you, but I guide them through just exploring different things. So I, I, I start with one partner and I'll say, so where were you born? And in what year that matters, not just for having the information, but if I'm working with a couple and, you know, I think about, you know, sometimes I, when I talk about my dad within one context and I, I will follow up whatever I'm saying by now, my father was born in 1939 in South Carolina, an African-American man. That is a whole lot of context right there. When I'm talking about his extreme emphasis on education for me. Mm. that that in some ways kind of uh, really pushed me into perfectionism. So I have to help people understand that I can simultaneously acknowledge that his, his hyper-focus on pro- productivity and production and grades impacted me this way. But there's a historical context that in 1939, a Black man born in the South going into the military, only, you know, that, that gives concept, context for who he was as a parent Um, and I can do that without the shame and blame that we sometimes feel we have to attribute to experiences so I go through and I want to know geographically where were you born if you're dealing with a couple or you're working with a couple and one of them was born in the rural south and one of them was born in New York there are going to be some contextual differences (laughs) at what they absorbed as children and then you know what was the constellation of your home right? Mm -hmm. Someone who is an only child is going to relate to the world differently than someone who was the middle child of seven. And Mm -hmm. I think all of that's important. Asking questions like, so what, what did affection look like with your parents or caregivers? Mm -hmm. You know, have, and these are things that of course they know their story, but they end up finding that they hadn't really thought in much detail if they had ever seen their, their parents, um, like physically affectionate questions like what did discipline look like? Who did the disciplining? Did it look different for that? And, you know, were you had two parents, but you were raised by an older set of siblings. All of these things matter, you know, what did, you know, how did you get attention in your family and what happened when you didn't get the attention? So we're, we're asking all these questions. And what I find is As one partner is going through, the the invitation I give to the partner who's listening is, especially because, you know, I can work with a couple that's been together for a long time. And I'll say, you Mm -hmm. might not hear different data, but what I'm inviting you to do is don't listen to this like you're listening to your partner. I want you to listen to this like you're listening to the story of a person you've never met. Mm -hmm. And I want you to just take in their story and I invite them to notice their body as a listener. When Hello. when yeah. someone said when your partner says this or when it says anything, if you get like a, <clears throat> a gut punch or if you notice your breath gets shallow, just just note that. And by the time that one partner is done and we've kind of gone through to early adulthood and I ask the partner who was listening. So just tell me a little bit about what that experience was like almost always there's some expression of, you know, I knew this, this, and this, but I didn't recognize that it impacted them this way. I didn't recognize, I didn't know that was a thing. And so yeah. part, I think, you know, in, in order to get to that stage where they're mindfully going, oh, what, what I'm interpreting might not be true. It's also helpful for them to then have a context from which it came from so that the partner is not, excuse me, the partner's not like, oh my God, no, my partner's just crazy. This just came out of nowhere. They begin to link themselves like, oh, through our work, you know, all three of us together, I began to realize that when you do that thing and that, oh, that might be related to this. Sometimes it helps the partner who's experiencing it have even more context for themselves. You're right. So I think it's so beautiful that couples can grow together in understanding their own historical context as it relates to their current relationship.
1: Yeah. And I love the way you develop the complexity of what context means, you know, because it's like you identify something like your partner lost their parent and then you see, well, he, they handled grief very well. And, and the, you may think, that's it, they don't need to talk about that anymore, it's done. And you don't get the flavor of, yeah, I survived it, but I feel sad every day at a certain time of the day, because I just feel it's so unfair mm-hmm. that my mom isn't here with me, and she didn't get enough of what she deserved to get. And so if you, if you look a little deeper, and you get that extra conversation, You get the extra layer. A lot of you know, some people, it's like, this is a caricature, but some people are like, You like orange soda? I like orange soda too. Like we're a great match. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it. Like, you know, it's like there's so many layers to what you're calling context.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I agree with you. You know, one of the things that I was thinking when you were talking about context is something that's really difficult. Um, And that is to put toxic social trends into context, because they do come into relationships, you know, and I'm very interested in trying to think these things through, like, for example, to deal with toxic masculinity, The, the idea that, you know, a lot of, you know, I was brought up, my father thought men were better than women in every, in every way. You know, you know I, there's a lot of learning that goes between that and who I am today. But I yeah. assuming that was true. Mm-hmm. And then there's the idea that struggle as we may, and I, when I say we, I'm talking about right now, white therapists, struggle as we may, we have to have tremendous humility. And I've learned this through experience that we may collect a lot of facts and find that where our understanding is much deeper, more nuanced and informed. But when we're in a conversation with a person of color, we can't make assumptions that we really know what their experience is. You know, And we can't stereotype one way or the other, we can't stereotype what the, the either the baggage that, they, that they're dealing with or the strengths that they've been endowed with,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and it makes all the difference. And, um, you know, I just find that uh, context is crucial in understanding all of these micro and macro aggressions that people have to deal with all the time.
0: Marty, you're so dead on. And, and you know, I think it's 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 so, yeah, I mean, yes, And I think what I'm going to say is there's so much that uh, clinicians have to be aware of. There is a humility that we have to assume, period. If you are a cisgendered heterosexual clinician working with um, a couple that's in the LGBTQ plus community, there's also a level of humility that has to be assumed. I think it's important for us to, or any other person, sometimes we get excited or not, but we are working with someone who shares a lot of outward characteristics as us. And we go like, Oh, well, I know what their life was like. And, and you don't, because there are so many factors that that contribute to how a person has been culturalized and socialized. And I think that is tremendously important. And that's why what I really can appreciate about the lens through which I, I look at life and I work with clients, you know, looking at their developmental and relational trauma is in so many ways, it's not that I'm trying to attribute um, a value judgment towards their relationship towards their life oh that was a good experience oh that wasn't a good experience what i'm simply trying to say is how did the experiences you have inform how you engage with the world and it and i don't have to say that that was bad or negative in order to be able to do that and then with couples or families what i'm saying is let's listen to the context through which this person has come up with this idea, this belief, this worldview, no matter what client I'm working with, um, three questions I have a tendency to ask them after we've done some historical you know, gathering of information is um, growing up, women were, and I let them fill in the blank, mm. growing uh. up, men were, and I let them fill in the blank growing up children were and we can find so much information and that's why not- I don't just ask that in heterosexual couples either because our our perception of the responsibility of what men are and what women are and what children are fuels so much of how we become or feel we need to become the expectations we have of other people and, and that starts to give us this context when a couple is sitting together and it's like, oh, you grew up with that perception of women. It, it's starting to make a little sense to me mm-hmm. why you have the expectations you have of our daughter. Mm-hmm. it's starting to make sense why you engage with my mother this way <laughs> because how your mother was like I truly believe that the in-law thing does not have to be what it is if we truly <laughs> that's why I love families right you think it's just the couple you know we're going to couples therapy which is great but I love families because each partner has developed how they are because of the environment. Like, bring, it, bring them all to me. I want everybody in the room. So we yeah. can begin to have that unfold together. And again, a thing I really love is helping the couple to engage with each other differently is beautiful while simultaneously helping people engage with themselves in a different way. To yeah. me, is miraculous and it's, it's part of what we do.
1: And I think you need to do both. Absolutely. You know, you know they, they coordinate. You can't really do one without the other, you know, because you, you're not bringing the whole person into it, but, but you don't have to worry about that because it's a natural process.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. The inside learns from the outside. The outside feeds the inside.
0: I love it. You know, you know Marty, I was thinking, um, let's give the listeners a little bit of context. So I guess it will serve as kind of an announcement, but let's give the listeners a little context in how we met um and how we've come to be connected.
1: Sure. Well, okay, I'd love to do that. I mean, what was the what was the actual was it, it was a podcast that I
0: Yeah, to. so Clearly Clinical. Clearly um Clinical. yeah, it was our Lifting Black Voices episode through Clearly Clinical.
1: And there were I think there were three people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was a panel with Dr. Uh, Tiffany Creighton. And oh my God, I'm good. <laughs> why do I always? Okay, he's such an awesome guy. His name will come to me by the end. But there was a panel of three of us um, through Clinic.
1: Yeah, and, and I was um, listening and moved and trying myself, as I still am trying, to figure out my role in the whole anti racist movement and the part I can play and need to play. And um, LaShonda, your voice really spoke to me. The others did too, but you had a certain kind of warmth that made me feel like, wow, one of my biggest goals is to try to diversify the Institute that I work for and to bring a person, a talented clinician of color move them towards the Institute to give them a chance to see if this might meet their needs, because I could see right away it would meet our needs, the speaking from the Institute side. And so we, so I think I sent you an email or called you, whatever the contact info was. And, um, you know, it's been lovely ever since. Every conversation we've had has been lovely.
0: And I felt so honored. Um, LJ Lumpkin. I knew my brain would catch up, so I didn't want to leave him out. But yeah, we were invited to be a panel for Clearly Clinical, um, which for the record is a um, CEUable podcast. Um, So if you're looking for CEUs and you're a clinician, uh, very reasonable and affordable when you get CEUs for listening to podcasts. And Marty did reach out um, just kind of with an invitation to bring me and who I am, you know, to the Institute of uh, Contemporary Psychotherapy in New York. Super exciting. I accepted that invitation. (laughs) So um, I'm really excited that I get to collaborate with Marty and the other staff at the Institute, um, helping people to just broaden their skill set and their understanding of working with families and couples. Um, and And I'm really excited.
1: Yeah, I love the concept that you, you, um, spoke about cultural humility Mm -hmm. as a way of bridging the gap in talking about anti-racism and just talking about therapeutic encounters you know yeah um, love that also just while we're on this subject I want to say that you're the one who recommended my grandmother's hands yes and that book has really um, is a paradigm shifter. It is. And it, it, it kind of would, it, it, I was thinking this while you were talking again about context, because I feel like that's such a rich idea, the way you were talking about context and how you have to bring context into a person, the, the way you understand a person's reality. And, um, within the, that, that book, What came across to me is something I've known for a long time, but have had a problem integrating, which is a therapy can help you locate and start to work with difficult issues. But unless you have some kind of practice that allows you encourages you to soothe your body, to get in touch with your body, to reconnect with your body, to ground yourself, then, you know, you can only make limited progress. So in this book, he really highlights the need to have an embodied regular practice. And I view all of the ideas that I use in couples therapy as practices, but they're more like mantras. They're like Lots and lots of ideas that I'm hoping my clients can come back to. Like to reset themselves, but mm-hmm. you also reset your body. And he brings that forward. And through him, you bring that forward to me.
0: Yeah, I appreciate mm-hmm.
1: that. Yeah, really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, so Resmaa Menekun's book, My Grandmother's Hands, if you haven't read it, it is so highly recommended. Um, he also has a free e-course I'm on his website, um, and I love this idea. And what I, what it felt like coming home when I when I read mm-hmm. my grandmother's hands because it's a way that I intuitively um, experienced the world and and were in ways that I was already talking about it. Um, But talking about kind of racism as this, a collective central nervous system issue. And when we talk about regulating our bodies and regulating our central nervous system, it is a practice, which is why one of the big um, taglines, mantras, and t-shirts, if you want one for (laughs) my business is it's not about coping. We have to heal. And we get into some places where people are frequently saying, I need better coping skills. I I need to learn how to cope better. I need to cope. And I'm not speaking down on coping because I do believe it has its place. And it's usually this introduction that we move into, um, how do I take a very dysregulated experience within my body and help it to feel more regulated and so we might do things so I'm going to go for a run or I'm going to have that drink or I'm going to buy something or I'm going to have sex or these number of things that help us cope and get our bodies to a place where it feels less dysregulated but unless we develop a practice to actually frequently help ourselves stay in a state of regulation then we find that our coping skills are sometimes inadequate um, because, or we keep going back to those, even if they're not helpful to us, because it's what we have the most practice doing. And so a constant state of regulating as a practice is going to be so important, whether you are just talking about yourself, it's important in relationships. How do you regulate yourself as a practice? What is your coupled regulation practice? What is our family regulation, practice, almost every person that does anything with me, whether I'm doing a training, a workshop, a session, we're going to start with some breathing. Like it becomes the thing that people know. I have people who go, I'm not going to lie. I'm not good at breathing, but I know every time I see you, you're going to make me breathe. <laughs> and I was just saying, I'm going to invite you to breathe. And and part of that is like, it becomes the expectation that our time together is rooted in us regulating our bodies before we move into this headspace, or before we start talking or driving into problems. And I would have clients who would rush through the door and they would sit down and like, Oh, and I'm like, Oh, let's breathe. And I could tell when someone got frustrated with me saying they needed to breathe. And I said, Oh, we're going to breathe twice as long today. And they're like, we got things to do that, that, that amped up sympathetic nervous system thing you got going on. It's not going to be helpful. So let's, let's, let's down regulate into your parasympathetic nervous system. Let's breathe. And I think that's one thing that I can say becomes a practice with me that people then go like, I can do this without you. Yes, please do that without me. And mm-hmm. and so to that point, um, so much of it points to, um, yeah, regulating our, our bodies.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and to go along with that, it's like so many of our lives are filled with so much stress that it's a part of our functionality. We really don't know. It's like a way of becoming reconnecting with, or even connecting for the first time with that part of the way your nervous system can work. So it validates that reality. And, you know, you mentioned um, among the things that people can go to do, you mentioned sex, which, which I had meant to just, make a brief mention of the idea that another somewhat toxic element that comes into so many of our lives are the negative messages we've gotten about sex and sexuality and judging ourselves about the way we think of our sexuality or the way we think of our sexual performance or the way we think about our bodies, you know, so it's another element That becomes part of a couple's therapy perspective. Absolutely. Part of a mindfulness perspective, and uh, yeah, you know that's what makes uh, couples therapy and family therapy because we, you know, we do both, but mostly we do couples therapy at ICP, the Institute for Contemporary Psychotherapy. Um, It makes it so rich, you know, because it's trying to deal with something real. It's not just a. One note kind of response like, oh, you have that problem, take an aspirin. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know.
0: And I it just
1: go ahead. Go ahead.
0: No, it just feels good to I think have these tools that can so universally work with so many different kinds of people, kinds of couples different presenting issues um, in a way that really helps people to feel seen, heard, and validated, and then teach them how to see, hear, and validate themselves, and then see, hear, and validate their partners. And, you know, I, it's, it's one of the many reasons I love the therapeutic relationship, because it really is um, a model for how people can engage with themselves and how couples can engage with each other and how families can engage together is that we get to sometimes be for some people, the very first people who actually engage with them in a way that is kind, compassionate, curious, and safe. And so they can really start to feel this is what it feels like when I'm safe. This is what it yeah. feels like when someone is being curious and non-judgmental. note. And so I will tell people, notice what you feel in your body. Where do you feel that in your body? Let's take note mm-hmm. of that, that feeling, right? Um, it's also, to be honest, um, if clinicians aren't careful, why some people get extremely attached to their therapist. And, and it's like, feel like they can't. Part of it is we, we give them, this experience, and then the goal is to help them understand that one, they can be curious, compassionate to themselves and help themselves feel that, but now they can go out and say, this is what I'm looking for in other relationships. And I think that's very powerful that in some ways we become this very um, emotionally corrective relationship for many people who have not experienced what we can, what we can offer.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you know, along those lines, it's like there's a primary, you could call it a meeting of the minds, where one mind accepts another and doesn't judge it, or you could even call it the meeting, a meeting of souls, where one person validates the whole inner landscape of another person, including everything that's alive in it. And, uh, you know, I think that's the, that's the acceptance of the mutual being that we're talking about. And then, then it depends on who the person is and what they need and how, how um, capable or incapable they are of developing other skills that will help them to form the, the social network support network that they need. And, you know, so some, some therapies go relatively short-term and some go longer. I, I personally don't like, I don't gear it like the, the treatment is good if it is brief and successful or if it's long and deep. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like everybody has their own needs and those needs are very complex. I just try to deal with every specific session, session in terms of what comes up, like you were talking about, terms of the here and now.
0: Absolutely. Meeting people where they are and and meeting the need as it presents, I think is very helpful. And, you know, I frequently will say part of my job is to work myself out of a job that I don't keep a secret what I'm doing. I want you to know what I'm doing so that, you know, people feel very empowered. And so I think that's beautiful. So I recognize that we could talk literally for hours more
1: (laughs) and another time.
0: Amazing. So we will have to talk again another time. Um, so if someone was listening, um, they want to know more about emotional nutrition or they're interested in the Institute of contemporary psychotherapy, your books or anything, they just want to get in touch with you. How could someone find you and get in touch with you?
1: Okay. Thanks for asking that. Um, I have two websites, martybabbitts.com, M-A-R-T-Y-B-A-B-I-T-S.com. Also, powerofthemiddleground.com. My phone number, uh, try me at 646-872-7885 if you want to reach me that way. But, you know, I prefer email generally, which is B-A-B-I-T-S-M- at gmail.com and icp has a website icpnyc.org
0: awesome we will have all of that in the show notes for folks so they can find that marty as we get ready to wrap up i uh always like to kind of round out an interview and conversation by asking my guests a fun little known or interesting fact about themselves
1: um music is almost as important to me as therapy. You know, I love all lots of different kinds of music. Uh, I like to sing. I like to play guitar. And um, I'm a learner. You know, I'm always, I'm always developing new areas. And I don't think a lot of people know that about me. But Well, Well, thank you for sharing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Appreciate that so much. Marty, thank you so much. One, just for um, your contributions to, you know, the world of couples and family therapy um, and for reaching out, for making that connection between us and our continued work together and for being a guest today. I appreciate it so much.
1: Thank you, LaShonda. I'm really happy we are connected
0: yes me too I want to give a shout out to Trey Angel who provides all the music for the Labors of Love podcast Uh, my producer Jay Suck from Instant Classic Media want to thank him and of course you my listeners I never take it for granted that you spend time uh, listening to our podcast if you want to reach out if you have suggestions for content or guests you can find me at www.thelaborsoflove.com don't forget we're on all the major social media outlets if you have have not already please head over to Instagram we have a brand new Instagram page dedicated especially for the podcast it's the underscore lol underscore pod and of course if you haven't had a chance go ahead and give us a five-star rating write a review and share the podcast with your friends and loved ones until we meet again you all be well